0: You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit providencetx.org.
1: And we are going to be in Mark chapter 6 this morning. We're going to read through verses 1 through 13. Um, so once you're there, if you're able, would you please stand with me and we're going to read God's word together. Mark chapter 6 verses 1 through 13. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff no bread, no bag, no money in their belts
0: Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Great day to be in the house of the Lord. Um, Okay, so like Lauren said, we have been going through the book of Mark, and we're making really good progress all the way at chapter 6, and our goal is to get done by, you know, I think November-ish maybe, or maybe the end of the year, and so it's awesome. We're doing it. Uh, With the fast pace going through the book of Mark, you inevitably get to texts like today, which do deserve two separate sermons. But unfortunately, we just don't have the ability to do that with everything we want to fit in to get through it. So with that, I'm going to, by and large, focus on the first six verses. I am going to mention verses 7 through 13, but it's not going to be quite the main focal point um, today. We did talk about the calling of the apostles uh, in detail in Mark, I believe it's chapter 3, like 14, 15, something like that, where we talked about him calling the apostles to him. And then how that was uh, basically he had kind of told them all the things they were going to do. And then what we see here in Matthew or sorry in Mark 6 is that they are actually doing those things you said they would do. And we'll discuss that a little bit. But just wanted to give you that caveat before we start. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm excited to hop in the text. I love just to start by praying together. Asking the Lord to help us. And then uh, we'll get into it. So you can bow your heads. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray that uh, whatever is said right now by me, God, that the words from you would stick. They'd be remembered. Anything from me that's not from you, Lord, I pray, would be forgotten and rejected. We ask, Lord, that uh, you keep us safe. God, we want to believe in you with all of our hearts, and we know that we have an enemy that does not want us to believe. So I ask as the word goes forth right now, That you would thwart any of his schemes and his plans. That you'd crush him. That we might believe with no hindrances, no distractions. Christ, you'd help us to see you truly, beautifully. That we'd be amazed at your grace, your mercy and the gospel. And that we, we would rejoice greatly this morning in our belief in you. Our trust in you. We know it comes from you. And it's a great gift. And we ask to grab a hold of that gift this morning. So Lord, help us. We ask this in your son, precious name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so uh, what I want to do is I want to start by just kind of reading through each verse. I want to talk a little bit about it and hopefully kind of give a good explanation of what are we seeing here in the book of Mark, what's happening as Jesus enters his hometown of Nazareth and he's proclaiming the kingdom in the synagogue, what, what's going on here. Uh, and then I want to run through uh, some things that I think are good application points. Our subject today is about belief and unbelief and, and what it looks like to reject the king. You know, We called this series King and Crown, and one of Mark's uh, main goals throughout the book of Mark is to show that Jesus is the true king right he's the king that was prophesied that would come from the root of Jesse the lineage of David in the old testament that Christ Jesus is that king Uh, his throne will never be removed Uh, he's the messiah he is the all in all and so I want to talk about what unbelief does what it looks like to reject the king and hopefully we can you know get some good uh, practical how-tos from that but uh, let's kick it off in verse 1 And he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Okay, so Jesus is coming to Nazareth. Now, he was born in Bethlehem. You know the Christmas story. But Nazareth is where he grew up, All right? It's his roots, okay? So you might have a hometown you're from that you're proud of, okay? Uh, This is where Jesus grew up. And so what we've seen so far in the book of Mark, he spent a lot of time in Capernaum. And uh, now he's kind of traveling southwest to Nazareth, his hometown. Now I want to give a few things about Nazareth. Nazareth was an obscure, small town, okay? It's uh, guessed that there was probably a little less than 500 people there, okay? It was a city that was basically hewn out of the side of a rock, so it was kind of on a cliff, if you will, uh, and it was just small, okay? It was just a rocky hillside, little town, not much going there as far as commerce or really anything for that matter, uh, so much so that you get the very funny line from Nathaniel in the Gospels when he's under the tree and uh, basically his friend comes to tell him, like, hey, we've seen the Messiah, come see him. Uh, It's Jesus from Nazareth. And he's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Okay, Uh, now you may have asked that about your hometown, right? I do that often from West Virginia. You know where the jokes go. And I I worked really hard not to tie West Virginia into this, and so I won't um, for the sake of you. But nonetheless, he's asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Okay, so Nazareth is not a prestigious uh, city, Okay? It's not uh, the vacation hotspot of the ancient world. Okay? It's a small, obscure town. And one thing that's very interesting is if you're reading Luke 4, so this is actually after Jesus started his ministry, this is his second time coming to Nazareth. So when he first started his ministry and left to go out and preach uh, the gospel, uh, he kind of started there in Luke 4. We read he actually uh, goes into the synagogue. He's invited to teach there, and he opens up the scroll of Isaiah And he reads a prophecy about the coming Messiah and he says, this prophecy has been fulfilled in front of your eyes today. I am he of whom Isaiah talked about. So he very clearly calls himself the Savior, the Messiah And what happens is that the people of Nazareth get so viscerally angry at him for what he is claiming that they seek to push him off the cliff that the city was built on and to murder him. That's how mad they got at Jesus. And then Jesus busts a superhero move and turns invisible apparently and just kind of walks through the crowd with no one noticing him. Which is a really awesome moment uh, for Jesus. But... So what we know about Nazareth is that this is Jesus' return trip now, back to Nazareth. Now he's gained some fame now, right? He's been going, we've been reading uh, in the book of Mark that everywhere Jesus goes, he's healing people that are possessed by demons and casting them out. He's healing the sick, the blind see, right? Um, And he's done all these amazing miracles as he's preaching the kingdom. And uh, he's getting popular. People are like, okay, that's probably why he got invited back because If you try to kill a dude, you don't necessarily just invite him back for for dinner unless you want to kill him again, right? Um, But they're willing to hear Jesus out. So that's kind of what's happening right here uh, so far. Let's look at verse 2. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? So that's where you start to get a, uh, a kind of feel for how uh, the people of Nazareth feel about Jesus. So he begins to speak, and what we notice is that uh, they think what he's saying is powerful, pretty amazing teaching. It's wise. They also realize that, like I said, his fame has been growing. He's been doing all these mighty works from, from his hands. And when they hear uh, what Jesus is doing, it says that they were astonished. Um, over and over again we see this right think of John chapter 7 the feast of booze Uh, the people come to arrest Jesus take him into custody and he stands up and preaches this sermon about how he's living water and it says that they went away and didn't arrest him and then when they're questioned about it by the authorities they said look no one spoke like this man I've never heard anyone speak like that he had authority right over and over again they talk about Jesus in the power the wisdom he's in many ways was matchless the way he spoke and so the people were astonished at hearing his teaching. But then they have the questions, how in the world is this guy right, uh, giving us such wisdom? Okay, and we're going to get into some of that and why. But what I want to point out uh, initially is that they could not believe the power, authority, and wisdom that Jesus spoke with. So they ask, where did he get these things? Where has this wisdom come from Where are all these mighty works done by his hands? How in the world? Okay, so you got to remember this. And we'll get into this in just a minute. But the people of Nazareth, they, uh, you know, saw Jesus grow up, right? I mean, that's the town he literally grew up in. And so uh, before he started his ministry, he was a normal guy from appearances, right? Uh, Normal job, we'll talk about that in a second. uh, Just living amongst the people. And then all of a sudden, a guy with no credentials... Right. So he was kind of a renegade rabbi, if you will. He didn't have his seminary degree, if you want to put it in a modern context. Right. Uh, Which I don't either. So you're welcome. Uh, But uh, he was not trained. Right. As a formal rabbi ought to be trained. And so the initial thing is like, why is this guy talking to us? What does he have to say that's so important? He didn't study under Gamaliel or one of these great rabbis. He's not a learned man of the synagogue. Now, we know that Jesus from the time he was 12, what we can see in the scriptures is that he was in the synagogue asking questions, right? Like, well, what do you mean by this? That doesn't seem right, you know? And he was kind of really teaching them, but uh, and obviously he's God, so he's qualified to talk about God. But they don't know this. They just know there's this guy he's like this renegade rabbi. He's got some... A, you know, ragtag crew of disciples, one's a tax collector, others are uh, other types of vagabonds, and they're all following him along, and it's pretty crazy. So they're like, how in the world could this guy be the one saying these things with such authority? Now look at verse 3, and it kind of builds on this. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So the next question is, isn't this the carpenter? I love that question because that's important. So the word for carpenter is... uh it's just food for thought. It's tecton. this is the Greek word uh, for carp- for carpenter. And it actually uh, could either mean a carpenter, so one who's a craftsman with wood, or it could be a mason, one who builds with stone. Uh, you could actually simplify it. The, probably the most basic use of the term is a builder, right? So think construction worker. This is what uh, Jesus was, right? He was known as the carpenter. Joseph was a carpenter and he took uh, over the family business, was trained in it. And so he's Got this job that he just, he's just—he's a builder. I just think of, like I said, a construction worker is a good thing. So, <clears throat> why would they ask? Is this not the carpenter? Well, there's a few things there. Uh, one is that uh, to be uh, a carpenter was not a highly esteemed um, job. Okay, so in the ancient world, uh, a builder was necessary, but they weren't like high society, if you will. It's kind of very similar to how the the modern, you know. kind of office job is taken over and sometimes the you know the actual trades and the blue collar work can be kind of considered oh that's that's that work for people who couldn't whatever which is really stupid by the way because you know uh, we wouldn't have toilets if that were the case and we go on and on about that I have a lot to say I think Mike Rowe's really good on the subject too but that's a different topic for a different time Uh, sorry just opinions Um, so they're saying, isn't this the, the guy that's just building stuff, right? I mean, that, that's right. And, and so I, I want to, before we get into that many details, I, I did feel like, and this is for free, this isn't part of the sermon, not that you're paying me anyways, but nonetheless, it's for free. <clears throat> a few good things to point out about Christ here in this moment that I think are instructive for us. One is that it's a good thing to work, okay? Think about that. The Messiah, the king of the cosmos comes to earth and what does he do for the majority of his life? He's a builder, a lowly esteemed job. He's just working away, being fruitful with his hands. So we should learn from our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, not to be idle people. Okay, Our desire should not be to be served, but to work hard right, to to work hard with our hands or our minds or whatever we do for work, whatever that looks like for you, I think it's a really good lesson for us that Jesus could have done a lot of things. He could have came, sat in a chair and had his disciples feed him grapes. He could have, we were talking last night with some friends, you know, Jesus could have just said, I want some hummus, boom, and there it was, right? Like he did that several times, right? He could have done anything, but he chose rather to work with his hands to provide for his household and to be fruitful in that way. And that's a really good, I think, lesson for us. And it's a reminder, too, that Jesus, when he took on flesh, he really, he took on all, all of, yet without sin, he took on the curse, right? What, what was told by Adam, that you will, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat, right? You're going to have to labor in order to have food, and Jesus took all of that on for us as a sympathetic uh, Savior, which is pretty awesome. But nonetheless... Um, the carpenter position, the builder position was pretty lowly. And so what they're doing here is they're starting to take jabs. They were already taking a jab at his credentials. Now they're taking a jab at his person. Like, dude, I've known this guy. He helped me build this thing, right? He's, he's, uh, he's just a random carpenter, right? Then he goes on, is this not the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us? And so they now not only question him for his trade, And position in society, but also the question of his family. Now, once again, I want you to pick up here. They are taking jabs at Jesus. So uh, most likely what they're saying when they're saying he's the son of Mary is kind of twofold. One is that when you um, talked about a man, unless you wanted to offend him, you talked about he was the father of so-and-so. This is why, and excuse the language, but this is why it was, it was a really bad thing to be a bastard, if you will, to be of illegitimate uh, conception in society. And so to talk about him as the son of Mary would have clearly been a jab on his Character and also it would have been a jab on Mary, who it was probably rumored was unfaithful, right? Remember, Joseph was going to uh, divorce her quietly when he found out that the Holy Spirit she can see by the Holy Spirit until he obviously was visited in a dream and understood what happened. He thought she was unfaithful and this was most likely kind of rumored. You see the same thing in John chapter 6 and John chapter 8 where they're kind of taking jabs probably at the fact that he was maybe rumored to be an illegitimate child, okay? So uh, they're just going after Jesus here, right? They're just asking, who is this guy? He's the son of Mary, right? And, uh, and then he also talks about, you know, brothers and sisters and I don't have time to go on this. There's a church history battle on if, you know, uh, they were actually his brothers and sisters or maybe his cousins. I think the clearest reading of the text would be that they're actually his brothers and sisters. That's what he had. Um, It's almost an irrelevant point though. But the point in all of this is that they grew up knowing him. They know the family. They know his circumstances. He's not the best in society. He's not the one to be like the very, you know, walk around with prestige Pharisee who knows all these things and is so holy compared to everyone else. That's what they expected the religious leaders to be. And when they see Jesus out of all people, the carpenter of an illegitimate uh, you know, parent with all these brothers and sisters, um, and basically they're like, you know, who are you to be talking to me? This is kind of what's happening here, okay? And so much so that they're not just like, oh, this guy's a goof. But it says they were offended. Now remember, these guys were so offended last time, they wanted to murder him, and they tried and failed. And so when it says they're offended, the Greek word here is on It's where we get scandal, right? So they were basically scandalized by Christ. They were offended by him deeply. Who in the world is this man to talk to us about the things of Christ? the Lord they were uh, offended and this is actually the same word when and we'll read it in a moment but when Peter uh in first Peter talks about the stone that the builders rejected and he they became a, uh, Jesus became a stumbling block of offense to them it's actually the same word that's being used right here to talk about that and so this is a rejection not just of uh Jesus as a man but this is a rejection of the announcement of the kingdom this is a rejection of the Messiah and it's really important for us to remember um with this but uh Essentially, you know, I kind of equate it to it's like if I were to go uh, tell my uncles, you know, uh, back home, that give them some advice on life if something was going on, they would look at me and say, Dude, I changed your diapers. That's the last thing you need to do is give me advice, right? It's kind of what they're doing with Jesus. You know, I knew you when you were in a diaper. I don't know what they used. I'm sure they didn't have uh, huggies back then or whatever. But <clears throat> so they're rejecting him, they're offended by him. And then let's go on, verse 4. Verse 4. And Jesus said to them, so he's responding to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. So they're literally asking these questions out loud. It's not something they're just thinking in their heads, but they're asking all these. And he says, surely this is true, right? This is a Hebraic proverb that a prophet is not welcome in his home. He's got honor everywhere, but not you know, among his kindred in his hometown. And Jesus was obviously to be rejected by uh, his hometown. Even his disciples at one point uh, and that was kind of a whole part of the redemption and taking on the sin of the world. We should have more time for that as well. But this is a, a truth. We see this in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 11, 21. He's rejected, you know, uh, by his hometown. We kind of see this in the stories of the prophets. And uh, suffice it to say that Jesus is just acknowledging a truth here that it's really hard, right, from a worldly sense. If you're looking at a worldly perspective, to look at someone who you've known for a long time and to think really great things of them. Uh, it's, it's a hard thing to do and it's kind of what's happening with their hardness of heart and that's kind of like a judgment for them and then verse 5 and 6 and it says and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them and he marveled because of their unbelief and he went about the villages teaching so what we see here and this is a very this happens a few times in the gospels it says that Jesus was not able to do mighty works because no one was believing so he healed a few sick people. That's all he could do. Now it begs the question, can Jesus not do miracles and amazing works when there's unbelief? And I would say absolutely not. That's not good theology. Jesus could do whatever he wants when he wants, right? He, he could definitely do that. So uh, I think the more appropriate term would be that he will not do that when there's unbelief, okay? So Jesus' uh, omnipotence was not somehow constrained by the unbelief of the people of Nazareth. Okay, that would make the people of Nazareth more powerful than Jesus. Right? But rather what's happening here, what we need to see, is when it says Jesus couldn't do many mighty works among them, is that this is actually an extension of uh, the consequence. Okay? The, the judgment of what happens when you reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? So there were these miracles. Remember, this is a very different picture than all of Mark that we've seen so far. Jesus is literally having crowds that are pressing around him so intensely and it's just like this crazy moment always for Jesus. So much so that his family's like, dude, you're insane, right? You're going to die. You're not even eating because these people are just pressing in around you and coming into your house and Jesus is just giving out over and over again, right? He's healing and doing all these mighty works all across uh, Capernaum and elsewhere, but then as soon as there's this staunch unbelief, almost corporate rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ in Nazareth, nothing happens. A few sick people are healed, but that, that's, that's all that is done. And this is a judgment of the Lord Jesus on the people, okay? If you reject the Lord, you also reject the blessings. You got to remember this too. Uh, when you see all these miracles happening, yeah, Jesus does heal because he loves people, Jesus does do miracles because he cares. Those are all important truths, right? We get this from many stories and we'll get into more stories in the book of Mark that show this very clearly. But also remember, why was Jesus coming uh, and doing so much healing? And as we see in verses 7 through 13, giving the apostles the ability to do so much healing and casting out demons. It's because what Jesus was doing was he was giving a physical sign to the message, right? He's trying to show them the kingdom of God is here. It really is. Look, I have authority over all the demons. They bow to me and they listen to me. I have authority over all sickness. It bows to me, it listens to me. Why? Because I am the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The king of the cosmos is in front of the people of Nazareth face to face and they reject him. And so it was also a sign of the coming of the kingdom. And so to hold back as Jesus does is a sign of judgment if they don't repent. Which is a good lesson for us, and then lastly, and this is the, one of the craziest texts in all the Bible. It says Jesus marveled at their unbelief; Jesus was astonished. He was amazed at what was happening. Now, this only happens, I think, twice in the Bible. There might be a few other stories that maybe give similar language, but this particular language happens once uh, with the the centurion. Right, the centurion comes up. I believe it's his daughter that needs healed, but he comes to. To Jesus and he's begging Jesus to do something to stop bothering him okay he can't come all the way to your house and do it. He's, he's, he's busy right and then he looks at Jesus and says I know that if you just give the word that it will happen I'm paraphrasing this is the Eric standard version not the English standard version okay but um, he basically says like I know for a fact that if you say it, it's going to happen he says look I, I'm a man that's over people and when I tell my servants or I tell my army do this what happens is they go and do it. They obey me because I'm the centurion. And he says, I know you, the same thing. If you were to say, go and make this happen, that it would happen. What he's saying is he's recognizing Christ in that moment as the Lord over all things, right? Just like the centurion commands the servants to obey and they must do it. Jesus commands the cosmos to obey and it must do it. The sickness, whatever. And it says Jesus was, was amazed. He marveled at this Gentile's belief simple but true belief in the Lord Jesus and he was astonished and so this is the other instance so you know we don't often get the terminology that Jesus was astonished so we should perk our ears up and listen why in the world was he astonished and uh, it's not as good as the other story because he's astonished at the unbelief he's astonished that the king of kings is right in front of them proclaiming the coming of the kingdom With all signs and wonders and power and power over demonic forces. And all they can think of is, isn't that the carpenter? What a joke, right? That's all they can say. It's amazing that they reject him. And we ought to marvel in the same way, right? It is amazing that the word of God could go forth and that people could reject him. It's amazing that for many years the word of God went forth right into my face and I rejected the Lord Jesus. We should marvel that that happens now. I want to move on for the sake of time. I was bragging to court that I did really good on the timing at the nine o'clock, and I don't want to ruin my reputation now. Okay, so I have to continue. So I have uh, four truths about unbelief that I want to point out because really this text is screaming to us about what happens when we walk in unbelief versus uh, believing in the Lord Jesus. Okay, remember. King and crown. We're talking about the King Jesus. The proclamation of the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and enter in. Come out of the kingdom of Satan and darkness and come into the kingdom of light. You've been offered that free of charge because the Messiah has laid his life down for you. Right? To reject that message, there's four truths about what happens when we reject that message that I think we can learn from this text. Number one unbelief blinds us from seeing the Lord. We learn this from verse two and three. The Lord is there in front of them for the second time proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and they see that it's a powerful message, a wise message, an amazing message. But all they can see is the carpenter. All they can see is the illegitimate son of Mary. All they can see is the dude that grew up with them. But they're not able to see He's the Lord, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the long-awaited Messiah. They have been longing for this for a long, long, long time, the people of God. And he's right in front of them, and they miss it because they're blind. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, starting verse 3 says this, it says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So What's happening in unbelief is that Satan, through unbelief, is blinding the minds of unbelievers, right, through their unbelief. And what's happening is that they can't see the glory of God, the light of the gospel, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They can't see it. I thought there was an amazing text to tie in because literally they are sitting, just like you are right now, and Jesus is teaching them, and they literally see the face of the Messiah. But they are blind as bats, right? In their unbelief and hardness of heart, they're looking at the Messiah, Jesus Christ, in the flesh, and they cannot see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What a travesty it is to not believe, to reject the Lord Jesus, and not to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And as those who do believe, we rejoice greatly that we can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible, over and over and over again, says, Look to Him, right? Isaiah, can't remember the chapter of the verse, says, look to him and be ye saved. And Hebrews 12, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, right? Look to him, look to him, look to him, look to him, see him. And unbelief is blind and can't see. Number two, unbelief makes Christ an offense. Okay, there's no middle ground when it comes to Jesus Christ. There's not. We can pretend there's a middle ground, but there's not. He is either Lord or he's offensive. He is either Savior, Messiah, or he is rejected. There's only two ways, right? That's why when Paul later on in 2 Corinthians, he's talking about how to some people, we're the stench of death unto death. And for some people, we're the aroma of life, right? Well, because there's, there's, no, there's no third option. There's no neutrality. Nothing is neutral, especially when it comes to our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. <clears throat> I want to change one word because I really don't like how the ESV does it, but we'll get there. It says this, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor, or I like to say the precious value, is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now what Peter's saying here, okay, this is a common thing. We've talked about this before when we went through for First Peter some years ago. But essentially a cornerstone was, it had to be perfect, okay. The, the builder, the architect, whatever, would go through, they would find the perfect cornerstone and that would be where everything was based off of. So from that cornerstone, you would build the foundation. You would build the whole building, the whole house, whatever it was. And so what God is saying is, is look, in my holy city, I got the perfect cornerstone. He is chosen. He is precious. He is, he is everything, right? And I'm going to lay him in Zion. And so for those who believe, this cornerstone, this precious cornerstone is for you, but for those who reject him, he has become a stumbling block and a rock of offense. It's literally the same terminology that's used that they were offended by Christ. It's the same uh, scandalos, the same Greek word that's being used here. I point that out to say, like we mentioned, there is no neutrality. You either reject the Lord wholesale and now you stumble over him into judgment. Or he is chosen, he's precious and you're not offended but rather you receive the message of the kingdom. So there's this clarifying thing when it comes to unbelief that unbelief makes Christ offensive. He will be offensive. You will be scandalized by him. Number three, unbelief rejects the blessings of God. We saw in verse five that uh, Jesus couldn't do many miracles, right? They, they rejected, uh, obviously, the main blessing, which was to enter into the kingdom, to know the Savior and to be saved by him and rejoice in him, they rejected that blessing. But think about all the other blessings that didn't come, right? The power of the kingdom came with healing all these things. Now, I'm not saying if you believe, you're going to get all the blessings you want. That's not what I'm saying, but, but hear me out, <clears throat> okay? When you reject belief in Jesus Christ, you reject the blessings that come from knowing him and his word. The Bible's a huge blessing for us, right? And when you reject Christ, you reject that. You reject faith in him. You reject the church, right? So all the blessings that we get as we encourage one another is the body of Christ and rejecting Christ, you reject that blessing. You reject the comfort that In all of our circumstances, no matter how hard our trials become, no matter how bad our suffering is, that we have a God who works all things out for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. You reject that. You reject all the promises of God that have their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. I can go down the list over and over and over and over again, but to reject the Lord Jesus Christ is to reject all the blessings that come from faith and life in Christ. That doesn't mean us believers have the perfect lives, that far be it from us to have the perfect life, but it does mean that we have hope eternal, which is a far greater blessing than a perfect life. I can tell you that 100%. And then lastly, it's kind of building on one another, but uh, number four, unbelief leads to final condemnation. Okay, that's where I want to turn to verses 7 through 13. So let's read real quick what happens. Is, what happens here in these verses. Starting in verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil, many who were sick and healed them. So what's happening here in the text is that uh, when, <clears throat> so after this happens at Nazareth and then he sends the um, apostles out to do what he had um, you know promised they would do, which was to do many mighty works, cast out demons, heal the sick, proclaim the gospel. He has a very interesting point, which I think ties in really well here. Um, is that he says if you go to the house and you're proclaiming the kingdom and they won't receive you, they won't receive the message, they won't repent, then what I want you to do is I want you to shake off the dust on your sandals as a testimony to them that they have rejected the Lord Jesus. And you're going to walk away and you're going to move on to the next town, the next house, whatever. Um, Now this was kind of common practice. If the Israelites would come in from Gentile lands, if they were traveling, they would shake off the dust as a reminder that uh, God has not called those people, but he's called the Israelites to be his people. So there was definitely some uh, illustration here. But what Jesus is doing in this moment is he is saying to reject the message of the kingdom. But more importantly, to reject the king is to bring judgment upon yourself. This is a testimony of judgment against them. Now, uh, the rendition of this in Matthew adds a little bit of extra... Um, I guess light to what happened I want to read the last two verses so Matthew chapter 10 we're gonna start in verse 14 it's the same same moment it says this from Jesus and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words shake off the dust from your feet and when you leave that house or town truly I say to you it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than of that town these are intense moments. I don't know if you remember the story of Sodom. But the undesirables of Sodom will have a better day on the day of judgment than those who receive the message of the Messiah and reject it. That's what the shaking of the dust was supposed to be a testimony for. Uh, to reject the call of the king. It says to everybody, right? I proclaim to everyone uh, to come to the kingdom, to Repent to come to the Lord Jesus. And if you reject that, it will be more bearable on Judgment Day for places like Sodom and Gomorrah, which were just destroyed cultures. Very evil. And it's going to be better for them. Why? Because they didn't get the message of the kingdom. You and I are in a unique position because we have the message of the kingdom held out to us. It's a very gracious thing, but it's also a very scary thing when we consider unbelief. To harden your heart in unbelief eventually will lead to final judgment as Christians we believe in hell we believe there is coming a day that has been fixed by God from all eternity where the Lord Jesus Christ will judge everyone who's ever lived on the face of the earth and those in Christ who have received the kingdom not by works of their own but by simply trusting in the Lord Jesus and not rejecting him will be invited into his kingdom forever and ever, and ever, this is the good news of the kingdom, and those who reject him, those who take offense at him, those who are scandalized by the Lord Jesus Christ, will be cast into the lake of fire. We believe that, and it's a hard truth. We squirm from it sometimes, because it's intense to think about, but it's true. So why am I bringing this up? Well, what we see in the people of Nazareth, we got to be careful not to see in our own hearts, okay? Now, I'm a Big believer as a Christian, I think the Lord's keeping me every single day. I think he'll keep me forever. I think I, I am his, he is mine, and there's nothing you could do to rip me out of the palm of his hand, as the Bible says. But what, what, what does the Bible say? It says, man, we have this confidence if indeed we hold fast to the end, right? There's a call for us to, we got to trust the Lord. Believe anytime we feel sort of unbelief in our hearts, we should be like the man we're going to read in a few chapters where he says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. He was desperate not to reject the Lord Jesus. He wanted the Lord Jesus. And so let's ask a few questions here. We, we need the Holy Spirit to believe. We, we need God to help us. But um, really this text, with the time we have left, is doing a few things. So Let me say this. The, the simple... Call of this text is to believe in the Lord Jesus. Not to reject him, not to be offended by him, but to believe in the precious cornerstone. So, as we conclude this text, believer, I want to encourage you. Because what I don't want this text to do is to drive you into further doubt. I just have a feeling that there are some people here that struggle heavily with doubt. I just want to encourage you, believe upon the Lord Jesus. This text is not a picture of a God who is just getting a big laugh at sending people to hell. That's not our God. Our God is longing. Look, there is going to be times where God puts you in positions where you do not feel close to him. We use a lot of words. You might say a dry season. You might say Uh, I don't know there's a thousand different things you could say about it but you know what I mean right you feel distant from the Lord you feel like I don't know if God even really loves me and I want to tell you believer that that's a good thing God puts you there sometimes because he's disciplining us right he's teaching us to trust in his name it's like the uh, uh, disciples when Jesus asked look are you going to leave me too everyone else left me and Peter says well Lord where are we going to go you're the you have the words of eternal life there's nowhere else to run and for those of you that might be doubting or struggling with unbelief my simple encouragement is belief God stands right now with the message of the kingdom open to all and he says look as long as it's called today and you hear the gospel message believe upon me okay he was astonished and I think broken hearted at the people of Nazareth as Jesus looks out right he wept over Jerusalem a lot and so Jesus says come to me you don't have to earn it but come and believe and so I hope you're encouraged. I hope you're encouraged that uh, the Lord is with you. The Lord is here. The Lord loves you. The Lord cares about you. The gospel's true. The enemy would love nothing more because he hates you to have you not believe in the gospel simply and truly like a little child. Have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I say we fight that at every turn because we look to Jesus. Now for those of you who would consider yourself not a believer uh, or maybe aren't sure, I don't want to hold any punch from this text. The Lord says, come to me from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And if you reject that kingdom, the dust will be shaken off as a testimony for you. Do not harden your hearts towards the Lord. Just simply believe. Now, I wish I had another sermon and I'm out of time. And I already ruined my reputation about being on time last time. Um, I wish I had a lot more time to talk about what does it mean to believe? What's that look like? But my my simple explanation today is going to be look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, set your eyes on his face, uh, beg him to believe, and as you see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, it is such great joy and uh, blessing and gives such hope and amazement. So let us not be those who walk in unbelief, but those who simply believe. Believe upon the Lord Jesus today. Let's pray together, and then we're going to respond by taking the Lord's Supper. Bow your heads with me. (coughs) Father, we thank you so much for your word, and God, I know that uh, we need you, God, without your spirit convicting us and helping us to believe god we have we have nothing and so Lord, I just simply ask I pray for those that are doubting God, I pray they look at your face this morning, that the gospel of the message that Lord you have paid the price for all of our sins you don't ask us to get better before we come you don't ask us to be worthy before we come to you but simply and truly you just say come just come receive all of the blessings that you've poured out on us through your death burial and resurrection you have won eternal life for us and you simply say come and God I pray those struggling right now would come and believe. God, don't let us fall into the trap of unbelief. Christ, don't let us ever be offended by you, but let us be among those who count to be associated with you the greatest thing of all time. Let us not be ashamed of you or your gospel because it's a power you have to save us. Lord, help us, I pray, in our unbelief. Help us believe. We pray this in Jesus' precious and mighty name. Amen.